I'll be reading through Romans 3, 1 through 20. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may justify that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? as some people slanderously charge us with saying. Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews better off? No, not at all. For we have already, been, we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it's written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, let's pray together and ask for God's help. Thank you that you are the one that has called us here today, Lord. It's your call, it's your community, it's your worship, it's your word. You're the initiator. And so we, we want to open up our hearts to you. And we pray that you would speak to each one of us as we need to hear today. Open up our ears, whether we're tired, distracted, uh, not really sure if it would do any good anyway. Help us, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, maybe you've had someone come up to you and say the all too familiar, I've got good news and I've got bad news. Which one do you want first? Well, I wish I could say that to you. But the truth is, when it comes to the Christian gospel, you've got to hear the bad news first. Or you won't really understand the good news. That's been the logic of this letter to Romans that we've been reading, this letter to a first century church in Rome written by the Apostle Paul. We have to understand the bad news, what the Bible would call sin, before we get the good news. And that's because you can't appreciate the wonder of grace until you see your need for grace. You can't appreciate the gift of God's free righteousness given to you until you've come to terms with your own unrighteousness. You cannot appreciate and celebrate salvation until you've understood that you were deserving of condemnation. 
This is how the gospel works, the necessary part of it. And so we have been spending these couple weeks looking at the bad news. And it wasn't just that. It's, it's almost like, you know, chapter 1, we started with the power of the Christian gospel. So maybe it's like we were on this, you know, kind of cliff or plane, and then we took a, a dive. And we've been underneath the water, deep down, and uh, no one really wants to go there. I certainly don't like to go there. I'm sure you don't either. But I'm glad God takes us there. And we'll conclude in our understanding sin, trying to understand it by considering excuses. Now, um, it is human nature, fallen human nature, to make excuses. Uh, you know, it seems as soon as a kid learns to think and reason, an excuse pops out of their mouth. I was uh, reading some um, excuses that little four- and five-year-olds have given to their parents for why they shouldn't go to school. Um, one was, um, the sun is shining too much today. I can't go to school. The other, another was, I need to stay home and fight bad guys. Um, another one was, I've cried so much I have no water left in me, and I have to keep water in me. Or, believe it or not, um, knowing that mom and dad didn't want the kid to have a lot of chocolate, my school serves chocolate, so I shouldn't go. Now the parents didn't buy that. But it's not just little kids, right? We grow up and become big kids. I was running across a, a blog by executives, and they were sharing some of the, bur uh, the worst and best work excuses they've heard. Um, you know, under the best were, um, I have a doctor's appointment, right? And you want to make sure you time that thing right at the right place during the day so you can get the maximum time off. Or I'm working from home. Um, I didn't know this one, and uh, evidently women, you, you have a special one. You can say, I have cramps, because no man will ever question that because he's so embarrassed. In fact, you might be embarrassed that I even said that. But one of the best ones is a personal emergency. I have a personal emergency. And then they shared some of the worst ones that they had. Uh, death in the family, not a good one. Because uh, especially if you forget that you've used that one about your mother before, uh, which these folks have said that's happened. Some, some folks' uh, mother have died a few times during their work tenure. Uh, another one, believe it or not, uh, I can't get my, my car out of the garage because there's been a power failure. Um, to which this boss said, do you know, they have this chain that actually lifts the garage door, and I suggest use it. And one that you might think using November 8th is, I can't find my polling place. So uh, for that reason, I'm going to be late or not be able to come in. I saw a shirt last week, uh, No Excuses. You've seen that shirt before, that slogan, right? And, uh, you know, as much as we want to wear that shirt, we can't wear it because we're full of excuses. Who of us hasn't used some excuse at some time, probably even this week? And in verse 19, Paul says that God's law will have every mouth stopped, meaning God must stop us from making excuses if he's going to save us. He has to actually get us to shut up with our excuses and to be silent so he then can move in 
and love us. You know, you've seen that courtroom scene before where you have someone on the stand and they continue to make excuses, 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 and finally the lawyer finds that opening and drills down and just lays his case and it's just quiet. Silence. I rest my case. God has to get you and I to that point where we're silent, but he doesn't do it so that we'll be condemned and then let out of the courtroom and put on death row. He does it so you and I might say, you're right, I repent. I need mercy. And at that point, the courtroom turns into a party because we're said all of heaven rejoices when a single person repents. They have repentance parties in heaven. We ought to have those. You know, maybe you have a friend that repented of something and said, we're going to have a party. You repented. Because it's such a rare thing. It's such a beautiful thing, and it's actually supposed to be the thing that Christians are known for. Because it's that Christian faith alone that has that invitation to repent through grace. So before we can get there, we've got to spend a little time understanding ourselves. And so in chapter 3, 1 through 20, Paul has us look at the objections to sin and the evidence of sin. And that's where I want us to focus our attention. First of all, the objections to our sin. Paul has been driving the point home to his Jewish countrymen. You must not, you cannot rely upon your religious heritage or the benefits that God has given to you as a ground for righteousness. You cannot think those things will contribute to your standing before God and make you righteous. In the last verse of our passage, he says, no human being, Jewish or Gentile, will be justified before the law. That word justified, you're going to hear a lot in the next couple of weeks. It's a legal term, and it means to be able to stand before someone, stand before the law, and have nothing against you. No one righteous, no one has a thing they can hold against you. But what does he mean by law? And there's been a debate here for some years. What does Paul mean by the works of the law? Some theologians in recent years have said, well, you know, I think what Paul is referring to are what are called the ceremonial laws. Those are the laws that made Jewish people distinct from Gentiles, like circumcision and don't eat this food like the Gentiles eat. The ceremonial law. But not the moral law, which is the Ten Commandments. But really, as you study Paul's arguments and you look at the way he uses those terms, and you'll see this throughout the book of Galatians, it's clear that the works of the law he's talking about are people that have confidence not only in rituals but rules. Not only ritual keeping but rule keeping as well. And so if he was you know, speaking to the Jewish community, he might be saying this, just because God reached out to you first, just because he entrusted you with his holy word, just because he has marked you out with a sign of circumcision, just because he's given you these promises, don't think that you're any more righteous inherently than anybody else. Or if he was speaking to a Christian audience, he might say, just because you were baptized, just because you prayed a prayer of salvation, just because you walked down an aisle, just because you got really emotional that one night, just because you landed on the correct theology, don't think those would be the basis of your standing before God and being declared righteous. Or if you're a non-religious person here, it might look something like this. Just because you were a really good friend or good son and daughter, just, just because you work hard at your job, just because you're someone that is devoted to this nonprofit, just because you fight for justice, don't think when you stand before God 
That will be the means of your righteousness. Because no one does it well enough to be declared righteous. None of us do. And at that point, you can imagine some objections because we have them. And Paul hears his readers having them and then directs them. There's three I'll mention. The first objective, objection would be, well, what good are the benefits anyway? Right? You find that when he says uh, in verse 1, well, what advantage is there to being a Jew or being circumcised? In the church, he might say, well, what advantage is there to growing up in a Christian home or going to a Christian school or being baptized or serving or being... What, what advantage if it's not going to help my righteous standing before God? You know, have you ever used an object for the wrong purpose? For instance, uh, you know, have you ever used a butter knife to try to turn a screw? You know, you're too lazy to go down and get the screwdriver, and there's a knife there, and you just think, and what happens? You try to use it, and it bends the tip of the knife, right? It ruins the tip of the knife. Or maybe, like last week, I did. The elders were coming over for elder meeting. We had pizza. I, I really don't like cold pizza. I'm always amazed at the people that like cold pizza. Uh, they're like, no big deal. I'll eat it cold. I don't like cold pizza. So uh, I turn the oven on to 200, warming, right? And I take the pizza boxes, and I put them in there. And I got them mostly all in except one. And I think, well, there's the base of the oven. It's not on a shelf. It's the base. So I stick it in the base. And you know what happened. Mike's in the kitchen, and Mike, who's a little smarter than me, is like, Glenn, I, I think something's smoking. And we open it up, and we pull out, and he opens up a pizza, and a flame leaps out of it, and the boxes are on fire. I was using it for the wrong reason, right? Well, all those things I mentioned, whether it be God's Word or baptism or all the things that God has given you and I, they were never meant to be means of justification. They were called means of grace. Means of grace. That is, they were given so God might strengthen you in the truth of the gospel, that he might point you to his free grace, that he might point you to the Savior, that he might point you to the righteousness that was given to you. So we wouldn't say what good, there's very much good in these things. If we use them properly, if we misuse them, they're not any help at all. And what the sinful heart, and this has always been true in the covenant that ran through the Old Testament and the New Testament. Whether God gave Israel things like, well, I want you to sacrifice this animal, I want you to do these things that you can't figure out. They were means of grace for Israel. They were a way that they would experience God's grace, just like we take this table, we baptize, we pray, we sing. God is trying to get his grace to you. So if you approach it as a, well, I'm going to do this and feel better about myself, you know, it's like, you know, opening up, um, you know, having a can of soda but never opening it up to drink it. Use it as a doorstop instead. And the sinful heart will do this. The sinful heart will ignore the purpose for which they're given and go, nah, you know, I can save myself. I can use this for the purpose that I want to use it and I can get by it. That is why. You know what the, the biggest religion in the world is? It's not Islam. It's not Christianity, it's not, you can go down the list. The biggest religion in the world is moralism. That's the biggest religion. The religion whereby people try to make themselves acceptable through their moral performance, whether you're a secular person here or you're a religious person. And the gospel is the only religion that goes against that. 
because it's the only religion that preaches a free grace, a total grace, that doesn't expect you to stand before God and go, well, I try, well, I try, well, I try, well, I bet, but, but you're not going to get, we're already told what's going to happen there. I mean, you're going to stand before the most righteous being, the most beautiful righteous being in the world, and actually, you're not going to say anything. And the people that are wise will say, I've got one thing to say, Jesus. You provided a Savior for me. That's objection one. Objection two. uh, Well, if we can't achieve righteousness from this stuff, well, God has a flaw in his system. He shouldn't have vented this system. It's kind of like saying the standard's too high, it's too hard. Now, um, those of you that have gone through school and those of you that have been teachers are familiar with the phrase, you know, grading on a curve, right? Where, where, where the teacher will, um, it, maybe A was 90 to 100, but instead she'll make the A 85 to 95. And when I was coming up, I mean, that was mercy. But I noticed as I talked to students later in life, for them it's justice. It's sort of like, I can't believe it. you got to grade on a curve. You must grade on a curve. There's this part of us that says, well, you know, it's too hard. It's too high. And so we'll blame the thing itself. It's like blaming your treadmill because you're not in the shape you want to be in. Or blaming the diet because you fell off it. Right? We blame the thing itself, and so the tendency is to say, God, we blame you for having too high standards. We blame you for this law. Come on. And, and basically, it, it, there's three responses that we do to that. One is, we'll lessen the law to make it more doable. We'll say, well, God calls me to this, but he doesn't really call me to that. You know, and we have ways we do that typically, and it works out wonderful in American modern cultures to go, well, I interpret it differently. You know, Jesus would say something very plain. Well, I interpret it differently. I have a different interpretation. We lessen the law. The other one, we might dismiss it as outdated, and that happens all the time, right, in the culture. Come on, this is just such an outdated book. When is the church going to get up with the times? Because the standard's just impossible. And lastly, we might rewrite and add the preferences. This is what the religious leaders were doing. They were adding these preferences and traditions, and Jesus was going after them saying, listen, not a, well, not a jot or a tittle will go away from the law. And you've got to recognize this has been happening throughout history. You know, it happens. And God pleads for you and I to have one response to when we come across his standards, humility and honesty, and just go, God, I, you're right. I can't love my wife the way I'm supposed to, even for a day. You know, I can't love my neighbor as I'm not supposed to. I got a selfishness in me that, that won't quit. And at that point, mercy flows. Grace flows. You know, I was thinking of, um, if, you've, if you've been around me for your long, you know that I like Willy Wonka. You ever seen, well, not the second Willy Wonka, which is a little creepy. I know it's closer to the book. It's closer to the book, but the Gene Wilder just died, right? The Willy Wonka. I'm just curious. How many people have seen Willy Wonka? All right. Good. Anyway, I'll, I'll go on with this. So if you know the story, even if you don't, Willy Wonka's a great chocolate maker. Don't worry. We've got time. Uh, Willy Wonka's the great chocolate maker, and he holds this thing. If you find a golden ticket, you get a lifetime supply of chocolate, and you get to tour the facility. And so these kids show up, right, with their parents. And uh, as they get into the factory, he makes them sign this contract. 
You know, and it's this contract that goes a little bitty with the small print, and they're like, I don't know what I'm signing. Sign this contract that you're going to abide by the rules. So as they go through, each kid just falls, right? Augustus, you know, drives into the Chocolate River, and at this point, you know, Veruca goes down with the golden egg, and who's the one that eats the purple... Uh, Violet, right, right, turns into a blueberry, right, all these things because they're just selfish kids and they break the rules and you expect one guy's going to make it through. Who? Charlie. But what do Charlie and Grandpa do? They drink the fizzy lifting drink, don't they? They drink the fizzy lifting drink. They're not supposed to drink it. They drink it and there's all eyes in this place, cameras everywhere, I guess. So they get to the end of the thing and all the kids are gone and Charlie's left and Grandpa supposes, hey, Charlie's the righteous winner here. And he says to Wonka, hey, what about the lifetime supply of Wonka? And Wonka just goes off the handle. You know, he just, you did this, you, you know, you contaminated the fizzy drink, you get nothing. You get nothing. And Grandpa goes into defense mode and wants to defend Charlie. But Charlie does something. You know, all the kids were given that everlasting gobstopper, and they weren't supposed to take it out of the factory. And there's this quiet, and Charlie walks back, and Wonka's, you know, got his back turned, and all of a sudden he sees this. Just pure repentance. And what happens? He gets the factory. I hope I didn't ruin that if you hadn't seen it. <laughs> I mean, spoilers can only go so far. This is like 1960, right? But he gets the factory. And when you and I come to this place and we go, here it is, God. I can't do it. He gives you the factory, man. He washes you. He makes you righteous. He, he brings you into his kingdom. He promises you eternity. It's amazing. And so we stop making the excuse. It's too high. It's too hard. And lastly, the last objection is really sort of a desperate attempt that Paul faced where people would slander Paul and say, you're basically saying... Paul, according to your theology, if God is glorified through his grace, if we sin, then we should sin all the more. It's like that quote that says, I love sinning, God loves forgiving, it's a wonderful arrangement, right? And Paul, it's represented where Paul says, um, but if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? That's the objection. But we all know that's ridiculous. Imagine a marriage where one person loved to be unfaithful and the other person just loved to forgive. He would say, that is a dysfunctional relationship. If that's your view of God, I mean, you don't understand his grace. He hasn't warmed your heart yet. And the truth is all of us deal with that. I mean, that's the thing. You know, that area that you and I keep going back to, what's called a habitual sin, it's the place where our heart has not yet been warmed by grace. You know, it's where it's cold. But let me hit the last point. It's not just the objections, it's the evidence. Paul then now uh, strings together a bunch of Old Testament quotations. And I'm sure as you heard this being read, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside. You were probably thinking, Paul, take a happy pill. You know, this, this guy is really just down, isn't he? Depressed. And so, you know, he, he's just sort of hammering us. Well, you and I have such a tendency to defend our own righteousness. And come on, just refer to one of the arguments you've recently had where you knew you were wrong, but you kept going. I mean, you know we're like this. We'll, argue, we'll go through it over and over and over, keep defending, even though in our head we know we're wrong. So he has to be so blunt and stark where he just goes, this is the reality. And by that, he's not saying that everybody is bad as they could be. Praise God, that's not the case. He's saying this is representative of humanity. But none of us can go through this list untouched. At least I can't. 
And there's basically two statements, and I'll combine them so we can wrap it up here. He first says, the reason why no one can be righteous, he, he says, no one really understands God, no one honestly seeks God, and no one truly does good. What does he mean by that? First of all, that we are far more concerned with being understood than we are understanding. You know, Tom Petty has that song, you don't know what it's, you know, you don't know what it's like, right, to be me. You don't know how it feels to be me. All of us sing that song, right? We're, we're, we want to be understood more than we want to understand. And it's not just a head thing, it's a heart thing. This is the genius of the Bible. It's not just an information thing. The, the reason no one understands God isn't because God didn't make you smart enough. Because a five-year-old kid can understand God. That's not the issue. The idea, if you're an agnostic, as I was and grew up in that, uh, that sort of environment, the idea that I need more information. I need more information. If God made a better case, I'd believe him. That's not the issue either. You know, sometimes it's a matter of the heart. Hardness of heart. I'm not saying we don't need answers to questions, but the book of Ephesians would say the reason we have a darkened mind is because we have a hard heart. And you've got to be willing to explore and go to that area. This is what Jesus regularly said in the prophets. Israel, it's because your heart is hard that you can't understand me. Coming to understand God means that I'm willing to have a soft heart. Second of all, he says, no one honestly seeks God. Now, again, we're incredulous. What? Look how many religions there are. Look at how many spiritual. How could it be that no one seeks God? What he means is everyone seeks a God that they want to have but not the God that is really there. And you can see this just by the way people talk about God, by saying, well, God to me is like this, or I think God is like this, or I think God is like that. Really what we're saying is basically God is kind of what I think about him. And isn't it remarkable how much he's like us? And I mean that in sort of a facetious way, right? Did you ever notice that the God that I come up with agrees with me a lot? He doesn't like the people I like? He tends to side with me on my cultural issues. I mean, this is working out wonderfully between me and God. You know, he's just a divine yes man. You have to ask yourself, is God a real person? Does he have opinions? And we've done this all throughout history. You know, the white Jesus in European art. I'm white. Okay, then Jesus will be white when he clearly was not white. Or you know, the Bible. The Smithsonian ran an article, I don't know, two years ago on Thomas Jefferson. And you may or may or not know, he spent the last six years of his life uh, coming up with his own Bible, editing the Bible. He went through it meticulously. You know, Greek, Hebrew, Latin, went through it, and he basically called it at the end uh, the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. That was, he took it and rebound the Bible, but he took out uh, anything that was miraculous or the resurrection because it didn't jive with him. And so you and I have always had this tendency isn't it logical, if we're going to know God, a being that's beyond us, he has to tell us what he's like? And isn't it logical that he might even tell us in a book? I don't think it's illogical that he would. But lastly, no one truly does good. Now, the Bible's not saying that people aren't relatively good. In fact, you'll hear the Bible talk about Gentiles as God-fears or this person's righteousness. But let me put it this way. What would you do if someone gave you a gift and later you found out that the reason they gave you that gift is because they were going to ask you for a favor later? You would say, that wasn't a great act, the motives were bad. 
Or what would you say if you found out your candidate of choice got elected? I know this is a minefield right now. So your candidate of choice got elected, but you found out they stuffed the ballot box. You would say, well, the end was okay. I wanted them, but the means wasn't okay. That wasn't right. Or what if, thirdly, you found out that someone worked, your best friend worked for a nonprofit, and they spilled their guts doing it and did all this stuff, but the real reason they did it was they wanted to be on the cover of the Washingtonian. You would go, well, you know, the end was bad. For an act to really be good, it has to have a good motive, a good means, and a good end. I mean, ultimately good. It might be relatively good, but if it's going to be good, 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 it's got to have all that together. And then you've got to bring God in the picture. Because it can't just be for us. It's got to be ultimately good before Him. Like if God made me and gave me breath and creates me and sustains me, I mean, how can I do an act and think it's good if it doesn't bring Him glory or say thanks to Him? If it's not an expression of love to God or neighbor. And so we have to say, well, does everybody really do good? No, but finally, Paul says it's not just those things. It's what we say, what we do, and what we think. He gives us this list. You saw it, lying, gossip, quick to violence, no fear of God. You know, the bottom line is you go through that list and you realize that none of us could stand before God and say, I've never gossiped or I've never, you know, imagined a violent thought or been violent. We could go down the list. So what is the point of this bad news? Is it so that you and I will grovel and feel terrible about ourselves? No, it's not. It's so that you're ready for the rest of the book of Romans, where God unfolds an amazing gospel, something that no eye has seen, no ear could even believe God would do. That sort of good news. But we've got to be willing to go here first if we're willing to get the chocolate factory. So let's pray. God, thank you so much for saying hard things to us. We don't like them, but we need to hear them. Thank you for your ancient word that still applies thousands of years later. Thank you for the way your Holy Spirit really gets in our hearts and our conscience. I pray that each person here today, in whatever area they felt pricked, that they would not keep it to themselves, but they would speak to you and they would find pardon for their soul. Let us taste your gospel, God. In Christ's name, amen.